0: Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Well, let's let's turn to the word in the time we've got left. Point of view. You've heard that phrase. You know what point of view is. Um, There's some people that... um, it's my way or the highway, their point of view is that strong. Um, It seems like we're wired this way, that in large things, in small things, uh, in everyday things, we feel like it's our birthright calling to convert people to our point of view, to the way I think. And that's what political arguments are all about. Uh, and that's, that's why they reach a stalemate is they've got a point of view, they've got a point of view, and they can't seem to convince the other person. But whether you're talking about matters of faith or on the job or in the family or sports or, as I said, politics or home, seems like we're trying to always convince somebody that our point of view is the right one. There are a lot of tedious conversations. You've probably heard some. There are a lot of tedious conversations that are all about point of view, and it can be innocent things. It can be something as, as simple as uh, somebody remembers, oh, remember four summers ago, the three of us went down to L.A., and we were going down to pick up Aunt Minnie, and on the way, we ate the best Italian food ever, but then somebody else feels like, no, you you got it wrong there. Let me Let me tell you how it really is, and so, no, it wasn't. It wasn't uh, four summers ago, it was two years ago. Oh. And there weren't three of us, there were four of us. Oh. And it was actually Thai food, and it was the worst food we ever ate, and we were sick in bed for three days. And it wasn't Aunt Minnie that we picked up, it was Uncle Jasper. Now, on that point, it's easy to have gotten it wrong because Aunt Minnie and Uncle Jasper look a lot alike, and they speak a lot alike, and they think a lot alike, and they, their beards are similar, actually. <laughs> but, but always the correcting, and it makes for a very tedious conversation. You said that the key was on the first hook. I found it on the second hook. Right? Whether it's sports or school common core versus the old ways of teaching, or, or it happens when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, it's a point of view issue, or it's Republican versus Democrat, or it's diet versus regular, cat person, dog person, big church, small church, choruses, hymn book, King James Version, NIV, paper, plastic. We've all got a point of view, and we feel like we need to make sure everybody is converted to our point of view. So in bold and subtle ways, we try and convince people of our point of view. Now, don't misunderstand. I don't mind squabbles. In fact, I'll watch any kind of fight. It can be a man fight. It can be a girl fight. It can be a dog fight. In fact, I've been late for appointments to watch a couple screaming cats fight it out to the finish. I'll stop and watch any kind of fight. That's not the issue. But when it comes to our faith, we haven't been called to convince people to, of our point of view. That's not what we're supposed to be about as believers. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, 28th chapter, Jesus is ready to exit the planet He's completed everything he needed to do. He has risen now from the dead, and that put a capstone on everything. And now he's gathered people together, and he's ready to leave. He's ready to ascend. And one of the last things he tells them is, go and make disciples, learners. Go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them all that I've taught you. That's what he tells them. We've never been called to convert anybody. Jesus said, go and tell them what I told you. That's all we're asked to do. The only imperative is to make disciples, to tell people what we've heard so that they learn it too. It involves telling people whatever he's shown you in your life, in your walk with him. What has Christ shown you? What has he told you? It's not that complicated. We don't need 12-step programs or a 10-week course to learn how to do that. What has Jesus done for me? Turn around and tell somebody that. That's what it involves. He scattered those first believers across the empire so that they would tell people wherever they went. We're not supposed to convince people that our point of view is the right one. Because that always devolves into some kind of an argument, doesn't it? We try and change people, but do you realize you can't change anybody? Changing people is supernatural work, and only God can do that. We're just supposed to obey and tell what we know. And the other thing, you'll see it reflected on the banner in front of you, we tell people what we know, we reach people for Christ, and we pay attention to the poor. That's all in the world the church is supposed to be doing. And then watch what God does with what we do. There's a story in Luke chapter 10. You may want to turn there. Jesus has sent out 70 or so of his close friends to do what he has done, to tell people what he's told them. It's just a trial run to see how it will go. And he sends them out for a few days and tells them, go from town to town and just tell what you know. And and the way you've seen me pray for people, pray for people, and they will be healed. And great things will happen. He guarantees it. He sends them out. And now they've come back, and it's kind of a progress report. It's a debriefing with Jesus. And the 70 or so have come back, and they're reporting the most amazing things have happened. We've gone out and we've told people what you told us. And we prayed for people the way you prayed for us. And they've been healed. And most amazing of all, even the demons are subject to us. When we come upon demonic forces, they give way. This is the most amazing thing we've ever seen. And that is the essence of their report. The things, the amazing things that they've seen and they've heard and they've witnessed. As they gather around Jesus and they give this little debriefing, Jesus listens to the things that have caught their attention and how amazing it is to see those demonic forces break before them. And he says to them, you want to talk about what you've seen? Let me tell you what I've seen. He says, I beheld Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he may be talking about that time that Isaiah 14 talks about, When Satan fell from heaven, literally, as he tried to take God's place, Jesus said, I was there and I saw his fall. He may be talking about what he saw as those 70 or so went out and they talked about what they had been told and they prayed the way they had been taught and they saw the miraculous and they saw the demons flee. He may have been saying, when you guys were out there doing that, I watched Satan fall. He says, you want to talk about what you've seen? Let me tell you what I've seen. I've seen Satan fall. And then he says something else. He tells them, you're talking about the wrong things. Pick up the story in Luke chapter 10. He tells them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. And you're telling me about all of the things you've seen. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, in what you've seen, in what you've done. Don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice, listen, that your names are recorded in heaven. In other words, though they had seen as they went from village to village, and they had scored and Satan had suffered, he says, don't brag about that. What was it they came back bubbling about? Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Even the demons were the toughest part. Even the demons were subject to us. Well, that's what they came bubbling about. But Jesus says, don't brag about that. As amazing as it is, because I can top you anyway, don't brag about that. Don't brag about that. He says in another place that the day will come when there will be people come waving their credentials in God's face saying, God, we did this for you and we did this for you. We built great churches for you and we saw the sick healed and we saw miracles in your name. And the Lord will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. In other words, great work even the miraculous, even chasing the demons out, that is no guarantee that you have anything like a relationship with God, and that's what's important. I never knew you, he'll say to people that have done amazing things. You aren't mine. Dramatic works, dramatic works may not be what he wants from us. There are more important things to him than what we're able to do It's a relationship that he's after. Think about the wizards in Pharaoh's court as Moses goes before them and he's been given by God the ability to do certain miraculous signs that will give the world the knowledge that he is speaking for God. Lord, how will will they know that you sent me? Well, throw your staff down and it'll turn into a snake. And he does that in Pharaoh's court and they throw their staffs down, the wizards do, and they turn into snakes. And there are other things that Moses does, and they're able to duplicate those things. You see, signs, even great signs, are no guarantee that you have a relationship with God. There's an awful lot of Christian bragging that goes on. Did you know that? I I know of a man, and he's older and he should know better. But everywhere he goes, he talks about Jesus. That's the good part. But he keeps a little memo book in his pocket. And he'll begin to talk to you about the things of God, but not in a friendly way, in a coercive way. He'll begin to use tactics that he's learned in sales seminars. And he won't let you go. He will buttonhole you, and he will poke his bony finger at you until sometimes people just give up and mumble the prayer that he wants them to repeat. And then he says, aha, another one. And he takes out his memo book and he writes down a number and a date, and the place. And at any given time, he is very pleased. He will gladly pull that memo book out and show you. Here it is. It's August, and already I've I've led 700 people to Christ. He's done no such thing. Some people find it very inspiring. I find it very repulsive, what he does. There are people who strut, and they say, look at what a great church I've built. Look at what great things we've been involved in. But did you know that that kind of conversation is tedious and it is tiresome and the world shuts its ears to it because it is so hard to hear that kind of bragging. Jesus says, don't brag about those things. Don't don't boast about what you've seen. Don't boast about what you've done, no matter how great you may think it is, even if it involves chasing the demons away and the forces of darkness bowing before you. Jesus says, don't. Brag about that. Brag about this. Brag about this. Look in verse 20. Jesus says there's something better to brag about. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Names written in heaven. Now, what does that mean? I'm not sure I'm really clear on what that means. Some people say there is a list. Maybe there is a list. I don't know. Some people say it's called the Lamb's Book of Life, and I'm not even sure what that means. Since we have a God who never misses a beat on anything else, I'm not sure that a literal list is necessary. But maybe there is one. But what it means is more important than what it is. When he says that your names are written, your names are recorded in heaven, It means that you're safe. You're safe. I chose that word very carefully. To have a relationship with him where your names are recorded in heaven, it means you're safe. We talk about being saved. I prefer to talk about being safe. We're safe. Jesus says it this way, you're in my hand when you come into a relationship with me and I'm in the Father's hand and no body can snatch you out of his hand. You see, it's not accomplishments. It's not what you've seen. It's not what you've felt. It's not what you know. It's not what you've experienced. It's not where you've been or who you've talked to. Let me make something very clear. We're not made safe. We're not made eternally safe by believing in God. We're not made safe even by repenting of the bad things that we've done. It's not your obedience that puts you right with God. It's not your dedication and your work for Him that puts you right with God. Putting emphasis like that, you're, you're, you're creating a logical fallacy there. You're putting the emphasis on effect and not on the cause. You're made right with God because before anything took place, Jesus Christ died. That's how you're made right with God. It's not because you're sorry for your sin that Jesus rushes in. It's because of what Jesus has already done. You see, it's what he's already done. Paul will say in his little letter to the Galatians, something that is incredible when you stop and really let it sink in and absorb. He says, may I, it never be that I would boast, brag, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't ever want to boast about anything, brag about anything except the cross of Christ because you see, it's the cross of Christ that sets us right. It's not because I'm sorry for my sin. It's not because I pray a prayer. It's not because I try my best to be good. It's because of what Jesus has done in dying in my place. Here's what you can brag about, he says. Here's what what you can rejoice over. Here's what you can share with other people. Here's what you can be eternally happy about, that you are rightly related to God. That is the greatest miracle, and that is our greatest joy. It's better than any other brag or boast. And here's why it's better. It's better because it's the best thing about you that you belong to the Lord, that you are his child, that he's living his life in you, think about it. Think about it. It's not your creativity. It's not your hard work. It's not your sunny personality. It's not your drop-dead good looks. The best, the highest, the most lasting thing about any person is their relationship with the one who makes life and love and beauty and goodness possible. That's the best thing about us. The Bible says that anything that's good in your life, he is the source. In fact, Jesus' half-brother, one who grew up in the same home with him and initially was not a follower until he saw him rise from the dead. James, at the end of his life in a little book at the end of your New Testament, he says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. If you've got it and it's good, it's because of him, the one who makes it all possible. No wonder, Paul says, for me to live is Christ, because Jesus Christ is the best thing about you. That's what makes it better. That's what makes it the thing to brag about. It's better because it's the best thing about you, but it's also better because it makes Jesus look good. When you talk about him, it makes him look good. There are so many wrong ideas that people have about God. I've talked to you about that before. We've talked about the myths that go all the way back to the beginning when our first parents, they failed God and they failed themselves and, and, and with that first sin came shame and they hid themselves and the Lord comes looking for them and they're hiding because they're afraid that he's angry. He's angry. God's not angry at us, but that's a myth that developed in their brain. And over the years, so many people developed so many wrong ideas about God that eventually the only way to clear the deck and start over was for God himself to come in the person of his son and pull back the curtain and say, no, 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 here's what we're really like. When we talk about Christ, when we brag about Him and brag about the fact that our names are included with Him and He's living in us, when we brag about that and not about what we've done, it makes Him look good. It makes Him look good. Each one allowing Christ to live in them is is a light set upon a hill in the darkest kind of night, and and when it becomes known to people around us that Jesus Christ is living in us, that he's transforming us, he's he's causing a life-changing experience, then my life magnifies him. There are two kinds of magnify. There's microscope magnify and there's telescope magnify. Microscope magnify, it causes something to be bigger than it is, so we can see it. But telescope magnify. It takes something that's so far away. It's humongous. It's huge. It's massive. And we can't see it for what it is. Because we're so far removed from it, and we put the telescope on that thing, and then we can see it for what it really is. We can see it in all of its wonder, in all of its magnificence, in all of its size. The telescope we magnify. But we're seeing it as it really is. And that's the way we magnify Christ when we talk about him. We make much of him. And then he's seen for who he really is. Not small, but large. He's the friend of sinner. He's the rescuer of falling souls, and, 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 and he's like a magnet that way. Jesus said about himself, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. All we've got to do is talk about him. And people will be drawn to him. It makes him look good when you brag about that. And then finally, it's not subject to change you talk about Jesus Christ and how he's changing your life, how he's living inside of you and the things that are happening and the relationship that you have with him, as as Jesus says here, that your name is recorded in an eternal place, that will not change. It's not subject to change. I love some of the word pictures in, in scripture. There's a game that I like to play with kids. It's a fast hands game where I I put my hands under top of underneath their palms and they lay their palms on top of mine and, and then I bam I hit the top of their hands. And the game goes like this if I miss, then you get a chance. To date, none have missed. I am the reigning world champion of the hand slapping game. I'm the current world champion. I don't, I suppose I'll have to surrender my title someday, but not today. The Bible says we're in the Father's hands, doesn't it? Wonderful word picture. We're in the Father's hands. I mentioned that a moment ago. We're in Christ's hands, but Christ is in the Father's hands, and nobody can snatch you out of that safe place. The relationship that you have with him, it will not change. Nobody can steal it. It will not change. It will not alter. It won't change. Nobody can snatch you out. You come to Christ... And you let him begin living in you, and you are safe from then on. You're safe from a lost eternity, and you're safe from nagging voices and critics that tell you you're not good enough. And you're safe from the nagging voices that tell you that, that maybe even come from the inside. You are safe. You're in his hands, you see. You're inside. And that won't change. And the Bible says there is now therefore no condemnation. No condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. It's good to belong to a loving God, you see. Resting in his hands, that is the very best of the best. I love what the end of Romans 8 says where the great apostle, it's it's some of the most wonderful things he could ever have said the end of Romans 8, he sums it all up saying, I am persuaded, I am convinced. I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, he's talking about ugly forces there, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing can take you out of his hand. The reason you want to brag about that is because it won't change. Not tomorrow, not next month, not next year, not 10,000 years from now. That will not change, you see. Brag about that. It's good to belong to a loving God. You can experience that every day. Every day. If I have a basketball in my hand, I can dribble it. Five times out of ten, I can sink the basket. I can move it around the floor. That's about it. But you put that basketball in Michael Jordan's hands, and you've got got college championships, and you've got gold rings, and you've got NFL championships. You put a golf club in my hand, and you better duck. You put it in Tiger's hands and it's worth a million dollars. You put some people in front of a computer keyboard and all you get is Candy Crush and games. But you put other people in front of a computer keyboard and you get a great novel. You put a paintbrush in some hands and a palette in the other and you you get a muddy mess on the canvas. But you put that brush in the hand of a Renoir, a Chagall, or a Leonardo, and you get a masterpiece for the ages. You give one person life and breath and a measure of health, and they become a doctor. You give another person those same gifts, and they become a drunk in the gutter. How is it possible to get such wildly differing results with the same ingredients? Well, it depends, you see, on whose hands you put it in. And it's that way with a life. You want a life worth living? Take it out of your own hands and put your life in God's hands, and He'll make a masterpiece out of it. In spite of all odds, in spite of what they say, what people say, the nagging voices inside, in spite of the failures and the trouble and the missteps, he will make something wonderful out of it. You want a good life. You want a life worth living. Put your hand completely, without reservation, in the hands of Christ. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.